Hi, everyone. I'm Monica Brain, series producer of Illuminative On Air. We've got a great episode for you today. The proposed Keystone XL pipeline would run from Alberta to Nebraska, carrying tar sands crude oil. Producer Tara Gatewood gets an update on the opposition to this pipeline and examines how the COVID-19 pandemic has changed the way water protectors fight this project. She also talks with Diné hip-hop artist Defy about his newest single, American Quarantine. But first, here's my interview with Mark Trahant, the editor of Indian Country Today, about this week's big news. Well, Mark, thanks so much for sitting down with us again. Really appreciate it. Let's start with some of the big news of the past couple of weeks, the statues that have, and memorials that have been coming down across the country. What do you think? Uh, it's such an extraordinary moment where everything kind of comes together at once. It's funny because there was a story I saw in Minneapolis about Columbus, and the story was, well, why didn't you work through a committee? And the response was, we've been working through a committee for years and years, and we didn't get anywhere. And all of a sudden, boom, it's down. In Washington, D.C., there was uh, pressure on Andrew Jackson's statue, and the Interior Department and the secretary went kind of full military response to make sure that that statue remained and cleared Lafayette Square. And these statues are more than just pieces of stone. They're actually a really uh, important story on how the country sees itself and what stories we choose to tell. And to see both on one side saying it's time for us to change that story and to make it more representative of the country that is. And on the other side saying, no, we can't let this President Trump actually said it, our heritage disappear, I think is really interesting to see that push and pull in a really dramatic way. The irony, of course, is that when statues came down in 1776, it was King George, and the folks that would have been opposed to it now are clearly were clearly were supportive of it in the idea then if they had been around. What do you think about this idea of revising history or the concerns that we're not going to hear all sides of history because we're taking these statues down? Well, I mean, it's patently silly because history hasn't been fair and representative, and that is going to happen regardless. What this is about is not history as much as story and about who controls the story and the narrative. And it's not the history as much as it is the idea that a narrow group of people determined that they are the country and everyone else is not. And this is a much more diverse representation saying, if you can't include us, we're going to take your story down. There seems to be a little momentum, just a bit, that this is seeping into the Washington, D.C. football team. What do you think about that? Uh, will you see that name change in your lifetime? Well, and I thought for a long time it's inevitable, but now it's even more so. There's no way that the Washington NFL team can defend itself against major, major sports competitors, or not just sports uh, corporations saying we're giving up old, old names, Aunt Jemima. Well, it really started with Land Lake Butter before all this happened. And as corporations start doing that, those same corporations are going to go to the NFL and say, hey, we can't advertise with that Washington franchise. We want our name off of it. And then it's going to be sooner rather than later that the name itself changes. Who would you like to see statues of? Well, I actually wrote a piece, narrowed it to 10 statues I'd like to see. And 
Folks, it's funny because folks got into the narrow idea of a statue. And we don't want statues at all. But the idea is not about a statue as much as whose stories are told. And there's just so much rich history of stories that ought to be part of the national discourse that are not. Every American should know about Billy Frank. Every American should know about Lucy Covington. And you could go on and on of some of the heroes that I mentioned. Uh, Billy Mills. I mean, you can go down the list. And I, for the purpose of my last column, I only picked people who had been in the 20th century because I wanted to show how relevant we are today. And I only picked people who had passed. So I didn't pick people like Billy Mills or... Um, other living figures, but looked at folks who were recently. Well, one of my favorites on the list is Helen Peterson. Helen is was really remarkable. She was Ogallala Lakota and had run the National Congress of American Indians for many, many years as its executive director. But before that, she had a career at the State Department. She wrote for the American Political Association. Uh, really, some of the things we're seeing now in terms of getting out the vote and getting people organized Helen was writing about in the 1940s and 1950s. And uh, those are the kind of people that we really need to have part of that national memory that has been missing and invisible with the really narrow selection of a few statues. Let's talk about the pandemic. We are seeing rates going up in certain areas, hotspots across the country and still in Indian country. The Navajo Nation has reinstated their their curfews. What do you think about what's going on? And is this evidence of maybe some failed policies? Well, certainly, yes, it's evidence of failed policies. But it's also really hard for humans to wrap their mind around that the best thing you can do is nothing. (laughs) It's just not in our nature. We want to do something. We want to fix it. We want to get out there and find a vaccine we want to do whatever it takes to make it go away. And this is one that can't. And this is true throughout history. It takes a while for this to play out. It's funny because you're hearing and seeing headlines about the second wave. And we're not even through the first wave. You see the growth rates and they've been pretty steady in most places across the country. But in some places like Arizona, we're in a real spike right now. It's going straight up. And it's partly because people have refused to play along or they've got antsy sitting back. The thing is, this time, as opposed to previous pandemics, is we have a pretty good clue about what works. And in terms of policy, what worked is what's really ticking people off. I mean, staying home, social distancing, mask to mask, things like that we know reduces the infection rate, but it gets really boring for people after a while and also very economically difficult. I mean, one of the challenges is so many of the people who work in offices can work at home, but those who work at Walmart or in a construction site, their jobs depend on them being there. And so it becomes an economic divide for those that can and can't. And again, with tribes, you're seeing really that play out in so many ways. I mean, we've built an entire industry around gaming and gaming is particularly, uh, and all tourism for that matter, is quite at risk from something like this. What's open in Arizona? Several, a couple of the casinos opened and then they shut down again. Some are still open. Restaurants are open and really limited seating. Bars are closed. Most retail is still closed. Some of it voluntarily. I mean, the the thing is, even if government orders an opening, 
that doesn't mean A, the stores are going to agree with it, and B, people are going to go out. And I think you're seeing a lot of that take place in places like Arizona, where the governor has said, let's open it up. And the people involved, either at the retail level or at the consumer level, are saying, ah, not yet. It's interesting. The governor of Arizona is a good example of this rush to get back into it, opened everything up and actually told city governments and county governments that they couldn't enforce mask ordinances and other things. And after a week of these rising numbers, the governor is now saying, well, cities can do that. The Trump administration now basically says it's up to states. And now you're seeing it, particularly in conservative states, the governor saying, well, it's up to cities and counties. So (laughs) it's basically government passed the buck. What do you do for your own personal life? Like, are you taking advantage of being able to go into stores and things like that now? No, I'm pretty conservative. That said, I just took a cross-country trip. (laughs) I uh, drove to Washington, D.C. It's actually interesting. Along the way, some states, New Mexico, when you drive into the state, first thing you see at the border is road signs saying this, you must wear a mask in public spaces. Then you get to Texas and places like that, and it's just the opposite. There are no masks anywhere. It really shows the it's 50 states deciding policy rather than any kind of cohesion or comprehensive plan. Tribes, and putting it on the scale, what's really interesting to me is how out front most tribes have been and being much more aggressive in trying to control the response. One of the stories we're working on for a week or so is on the tribes that have no cases and how they've dealt with it. And you think about the economic activity, and yet zero cases, how do you keep people inspired to stick with it when there are no cases? Yeah, I think about that too. My dad was down in Arizona near Phoenix, Apache Junction. That's He's a snowbird. And then he went up to Fort Peck. And then, of course, all the rates in Arizona went way up. And so we were really glad. But he's still he goes to his poker game and he's going to the casino. And I'm like, I don't think that's a good idea. And he said, we don't have any cases up here. It doesn't matter. I can go. How do you explain that to particularly elders who are bored out of their minds? I mean, as long as there are no cases, it's great, but it only takes one to change everything. And a story today just blew me away about the the nature of it. I mean, Scientific American did a whole issue on it this month, and they go in deep in how how it spreads and super spreaders. And originally I saw this idea in CDC of how you should keep groups under five and ten And I thought, why did they pick that number? But it turns out there's science behind it. And once you go over five people, the uh, amount of time you spend with them becomes the other factor. And they actually have a mathematical formula for this where they can calculate the rate. And once you get above that five number, the rate just starts going up exponentially, which follows the infection rate. Well, I want to talk a little bit about native media for a moment. Big news events happen. Journalists, of course, are essential. And this is really a moment for us in native media. And the work that you've been doing at Indian Country Today, the work that that I've been doing at Native America Calling, what I've been seeing at the, the Navajo Times, you know, it's it's really something remarkable to me to see the kind of reporting that's going on, particularly with the challenges that we face, you know, staying safe and being able to report in these communities. So I wonder, you know, if you've heard much from your readers about 
what they're able to get from Indian country today and how they feel about what you've been delivering to them. Well, I've never been associated with an organization that gets more thank yous. I'll call somebody up and they'll say, thank you for what you're doing. I mean, I'm really struck and humbled by it because people do recognize the significance. We judge ourselves in the media so often on what's on the front page and what the big headline is or what the big scoop is. But I'll tell you, this time around, some of the most important stories we're doing are the ordinary stories. Our push to write as many obituaries as we can, for example, is something that's going to be really lasting. And you look back at the flu from a century ago, and nobody was there to do that. And that's one thing that's different, that's better, that I'm really honored and really glad we're able to do. Do you think that we are changing the visibility of Natives in this country through the work that we're doing? I think I think we are. I think so much of the media has followed us. They've seen stories that we've done and then kind of pounced on them. Uh, sometimes it's maddening because of the way they do it, but <laughs> they don't have the same ability to get into the weeds and to look at the both the narrow and the big picture. And so you see that they just don't have people that have context. And you see that all the time. And that's the one part of the story that I love is that our reporters have that context and they know what happened the year before, the decade before, and they're able to put two things together in a way. It's really interesting to me that we're talking, we've been talking about diversity in media for the last, really since the Kerner Commission in 1968. And the media has basically said every time, well, we can't get there. There's no one out there. We just can't get there. And now you're seeing the rise of independent media, whether it's Native America Calling or uh, Navajo Times or Indian Country Today, who basically have set the course saying, you know what, we don't need the outside media. We're going to do it ourselves and we're going to serve our readers and we're going to show how professional we can be. And the talent that we're assembling in each of these different spheres is really deep and amazing. Check out all the COVID-19 reporting at IndianCountryToday.com. And now, Isleta and Danae producer Tara Gatewood takes us to where things stand on the fight against the Keystone XL pipeline. The TC Energy Keystone XL Tar Sands Pipeline has a planned route that extends from Hardesty, Alberta, Canada to Steel City, Nebraska. The company, formerly known as TransCanada, hopes to enter into service in 2023 when they say some 830,000 barrels a day could be flowing. The oil would eventually make its way to the Gulf Coast for export. The pipeline's Phase 4 expansion, which has created political controversy for years, also poses to pass through the states of Montana and South Dakota. Supporters of the project see the KXL pipeline as a way to build the economy and provide jobs. In late March, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney committed the government of Alberta to a billion-dollar-plus investment into the project and offered a several-billion-dollar loan guarantee. Here's some of the words that Premier Kenny shared on the urgency to back this project right now. It's from the Alberta government's YouTube channel. We can't wait for the end of the pandemic and the global recession in order to act. There are steps that we must take now to build our future. Steps that are focused on jobs, the economy, and on pipelines. 
Things have also heated up politically with word from Joe Biden's campaign that stated if elected president, Biden would rescind the pipeline's permit. Dallas Goldtooth, who is Dakota and Diné, is the Keep It in the Ground campaign organizer with the Indigenous Environmental Network. We connected with Dallas via Skype. He's followed the progression of the KXL pipeline and has spoken out against it for years. For more than a decade, many environmentalists, farmers, landowners, and indigenous people have spoken out against the Keystone XL project, including Dallas's organization, IEN. So we've fought and we've defeated this pipeline numerous times now. Um, it's kind of why we call it the zombie pipeline. It just keeps coming back from the dead. I can't, I, I, there's no way I can make this an understatement. KXL is a benchmark. If we beat this project once more, and I firmly believe we can, it's going to send a message to the entire economic system overall. And that message is you do not mess with Indigenous rights. You do not threaten our communities whatsoever, or we will fight back to our fullest extent. And I look forward to us winning, whether that's in the courts or whether that's out in the fields, we're going to be there. To get more perspective on this journey, I connected with Matt Campbell, a staff attorney at the Native American Rights Fund, who represents the Fort Belknap Indian community and the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. They're two tribes who are in current litigation against further KXL pipeline construction over the lands and waters they connect to. Matt said via Skype the Native pushback against the project is rooted in protecting the sacred. Matt, who's enrolled in the native village of Gamble, Alaska, also offered a historical context to this struggle, which spans over different administrations. The Keystone XL pipeline has been uh, on attempting to move forward for more than a decade now. And the Obama administration had twice denied TransCanada a permit to build Keystone XL pipeline across the international border because it found that the pipeline would not be in the national interest because of its impact on the climate, climate change, the environment, uh, on tribal lands and resources. And so uh, it found that the pipeline was not in the national interest. Uh, In 2017, uh, President Trump invited TransCanada to reapply for a permit to build the pipeline across the international border, and TransCanada did that. And President Trump, through the State Department, actually issued them a permit. Uh, At that point, there were several lawsuits filed, and Rosebud and Fort Belknap, who we represent, uh, also filed a lawsuit with regard to that 2017 permit that its approval was uh, unlawful as against environmental statutes, as well as violating the treaties with uh, the tribes, the Fort Laramie treaties and the Lame Bull treaty that the tribes negotiated with the United States more than 100 years ago. Uh, The court in a similar case found that the 2017 permit was unlawful and asked that the United States conduct an environmental analysis, a more full environmental analysis. And uh, so that order um, was issued in 2018, late in 2018, I believe. And the United States and TransCanada appealed that order. But during the appeal, President Trump uh, decided to come back 
and issue a second permit, this time not through the State Department, but directly from the president. And um, therefore, he mooted out the lawsuit that was on appeal. And so uh, all of the parties had to come back to the drawing board and amend their complaint and challenge the president's new permit that was issued in 2019. Uh, the problem with the new permit is that it likewise uh, violated the treaties that the tribes had negotiated with the United States, um, the Fort Laramie treaties and the Lambeau Treaty. Uh, and in those treaties, the United States promised to protect the tribes from any and all depredation and also promised that uh, anyone crossing uh, Rosebud's lands must obtain Rosebud's consent. So that's kind of where we are currently in terms of the lawsuit is uh, the lawsuit is now against the 2019 permit that President Trump issued. Uh, and he issued it in attempt to uh, short circuit the court's ruling against him. In just a moment, we'll hear from another person who says, not today, not tomorrow, not ever, no to KXL. But before we do, here's Matt again with the details on the latest action in the courts against the Keystone XL pipeline, which would ultimately span 1,210 miles. On April 15th, in a similar case, the court actually uh, enjoined TransCanada from crossing any of the major rivers and waters of the United States under the Clean Water Act and the Endangered Species Act. So the court found that the United States failed to properly analyze uh, the impact the pipeline could have on endangered species and that the water permits that the Army Corps of Engineers was granting to TransCanada uh, failed to properly undertake that endangered species analysis. And so the court has stopped and blocked TransCanada from doing any construction across uh, the, the many rivers and lakes that they'll have to cross uh, through the United States. Both the United States and TransCanada have appealed that decision to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and, and that's where it sits right now. They're asking the Court of Appeals to overturn the district court's decision uh, with regard to those river crossings. Although this motion is in play, news reports indicate construction connected to the project is going on, including site work for labor camps. On May 22nd, the Associated Press reported words from Aaron Loringer, who is the Montana governor's spokesperson. The report said that Montana officials have not yet received plans requested from the company to make sure it can prevent the camps from spreading the coronavirus and that the state expects to receive the plans before the camps are occupied. Dakota and Danae IEN organizer Dallas Goldtooth that we heard from earlier also had a view on what it means to see the project proceeding during the coronavirus pandemic. Well, I want to say this. You know, President Trump doesn't care about tribal sovereignty. It's obvious that this president doesn't care about indigenous rights whatsoever. He doesn't care about the welfare of just everyday common people along this pipeline route. And we see that for the very fact that he allows uh, construction workers, uh, pipeline workers, to be deemed as essential workers during this coronavirus. I mean, it's a disgusting, uh, it's a complete disregard for the health and well-being of rural communities, of Native communities and tribal nations. And it's not surprising, but it's just, 
I can't, I can't describe the fear that a lot of folks along the route are experiencing, not only because of the virus and its, its, its risk, but because of the idea that you're going to have hundreds upon hundreds of construction workers from all across the country, oil men or oil workers coming into these very same communities, potentially bringing uh, sickness. Um, I, it's like I'm, I'm speechless because not only do we have to worry about, you know, uh, danger of get, our people getting sick, not only do we have to worry about how we're going to feed our people, how we're going to get through this coronavirus and with our bills and rent, we have to also worry about this damn pipeline coming through. And it's in the, and we're, I'm just tired. I'm tired. I'm tired of fighting, but I'm not, I'm not giving up. Neither are the folks that we're working with or the communities that I work for. We're not giving up whatsoever. And Dallas, any thoughts? A lot of times when there's time to take action, it's a calling of a mass of people. And because of the pandemic, people have really had to change the way they go about making their voices heard, lowering the numbers that you would usually see at a stance or in cases like Mauna Kea, where they have had to leave their base to move things online. Any thoughts about how the pandemic is affecting Indigenous nations this way when it comes to taking a stance? Well, one thing is that we're seeing, um, you know, conservative-leaning states take advantage of the pandemic and the lockdowns that we're seeing to continue uh, construction against violating the rights of Indigenous communities. We're seeing that they take advantage of the fact that our people can't come out into the streets to continue construction. That's what we're seeing on KXL. They're moving, they're moving bulldozers, they're pre- preparing man camp locations, knowing that we can't gather in mass. Not that we don't want to, but we, we're trying to protect our communities. Um, I think that also what it's teaching us is that there's other ways for us to disrupt the system and the status quo. And, you know, by, by getting, being smart, by using digital tools, we are still able to effectively send our, our voices to those in power. It's not a, it's not a, you know, pretty, right? Ideally, we want to gather in mass, but you know, we want to protect our elders. We want to protect those vulnerable ones in our, in our, in our homelands. And so we respect that space. We don't go out in public, but we can still fight for divestment. We can still put pressure on the corporations and the financiers who are funding projects like uh, Keystone XL, and tell them, look, if you're putting money into Keystone XL, if you're you're giving money to TC Energy, or if you're providing insurance for TC Energy, then your hands are just as dirty as the oil company itself. Just before the April 15th court ruling, a few water protectors gathered near the Canada-U.S. border near the KXL construction zone area to offer their thoughts and make offerings. That was several youth with the Koki Pashni group that was at the small gathering. Angeline Cheek, also with the group, said with the coronavirus looming, precautions were taken at this gathering as well as a second action on May 5th that was raising awareness on the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and... It's what she and other advocates say is directly connected to the oil industry. We try to keep the numbers small because of COVID-19 going on, and then we want to make sure that everybody was safe by 
making sure that we stayed home 14 days prior to the action and made sure that we all wore masks and, you know, took safety precautions for the elders. You know, with the pandemic, we, we did want to make a stand and it all goes back to Kokipashni, no fear, having no fear and just making sure that we're safe. And that's why we stood a distance away from trans Canada workers and private security. We noticed that they weren't they weren't practicing social distancing. They didn't have they weren't wearing they weren't taking safety precautions of what we witnessed. And that's why we kind of kept kept a, a step back. Angeline lives on the Fort Peck Reservation and also works for the ACLU of Montana as an Indigenous justice organizer. One of the major concerns cultural advocates and water protectors have is an oil spill contaminating important water resources. One of the elders that was out at the action at the border just about four weeks ago, her name was Cheyenne Foote of Poplar, Montana, and she talked about how when she was a young girl, the reason why she was standing out at the border in opposition of KXL pipeline and a part of our ceremony was because she had to drink contaminated water from the Murphy oil spill that was, you know, that happened in north of Poplar, Montana. You know, she talked about that and and talked about like her grandkids and how if this, you know, when this pipeline breaks, you know, the the negative impact that that it will have. Angeline, who's from the Fort Peck and Assiniboine Sioux tribes, also has concerns about potential contamination. For her, it really hit home when she visited Alberta in the tar sands last year. She added what's happening in Canada is what could be taking place in the U.S. if the pipeline goes through vital tribal areas. Angeline also described what she and others witnessed on their latest actions this spring. When we were up at the border, there was border security, there was a helicopter north of us, there was security that surrounded us, and even the private security. And they kind of seemed like they had a bully attitude, like, you have to go now, you have to go. Like, they told us three times, and then, so after the third time, then we, we just left, we followed their orders, because they're always saying that water protectors are, you know, I guess, like, they're always saying that we're, we're not peaceful, so we wanted to show that example that, yes, we are peaceful. So after the third time, when private security told us that we have to go now, so then after that, we just got into the cars and we left. And then one of the grandmas said, hey, for MMIW Day, you know, maybe we should do a remembrance day of, of those that went missing. And the students wanted to raise, or there's two, two girls, my nieces, that wanted to raise awareness about being chased down by oil workers. So we did go up to the border again and they were still doing construction. We still seen the pipeline going through. Private security had it more set up where they had more roadblocks. And on your way up to the border, at every single turn, they have either two trucks or two Jeeps that have TransCanada private security. And then like when you pass them, they slowly follow you up to the border. What are some of your thoughts that construction's going on? This also means more people from out of the area. And if more continues, that could mean more people are coming to the area. I look at this as a form of, of genocide. I look at this as a hate 
a hate group. The oil corporations should be held accountable. If anybody in the area gets COVID-19, especially if people are coming in from different places with these oil corporations or with these industries, they should be held accountable. And to me, it's a foreign, it's a foreign company that's coming here, throwing their weight around, showing that they, they can overpower the United States by continuing construction. But it's, it's crazy that the United States is letting, allowing, allowing a foreign company to boss us around, to boss the United States around. And they should be abiding by the law of Judge Morris, the motions that he made. But it seems like they're, they're above the law and doing things and still construction because pre-construction is construction. And it just, it, it's really upsetting that they would, that they would do that during a pandemic. But, you know, with our creator and our, our ancestors and our way, our, the indigenous belief system, we look at signs, you know, we're, we're shown different things. And, you know, with this sign, oil is not essential. And this pandemic proved it. And so anything else, just thoughts about standing up against KXL Pipeline during these times with the pandemic? We just, we have to remain vigilant. We have to remain calm. We have to, we still have to bring awareness to the KXL Pipeline and how it's going to impact the communities, the detrimental impact that are the negative impact that it will have on the, the water, our way of life, you know, things like that. And my thoughts on that is just to protect it, protect our medicine, protect our water. You know, when you protect the water, you're protecting the language, you're protecting what the ancestors fought for. And you see the water shortage, like when the pandemic first started, there was no toilet paper, there was no, there was shortage on food, there was shortage on bottled water, you know, that's, that's what, to me, that's what it looks like when climate change happens, you know, and then, so is that the last resort is fighting over water? Are we going to have bottled water at our ceremonies? You know, it, it just kind of brings, brings that kind of thought. And the movement has to continue and we have to be prepared. We have to stay one step ahead and create other plans to ensure the safety of the people and also at the same time to ensure the safety of our Lakota way of life and other tribes, their way of life. You know, I, I, um, I send prayers to the Navajo Nation and what's happening there could happen in any Indigenous community and they're not getting any help at all. Is it going to be that same way if KXL brings COVID-19 here?
Wrapping up our look at the Keystone XL fight was the song Youth Prayer Chant from the Spirit Line woven together for our Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives album. The voice you heard was Anjamora Sato McLaughlin, a Taos Pueblo Japanese and Irish youth who was invited to share her talent with the Spirit Line Collective. This project was an action to bring more awareness to the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls issue and was co-produced by the Three Sisters Collective and Clara Natanaba Music, supported by the Sovereign Bodies Institute. And now, Tara brings you the story behind a new song by Danae M.C. Defy. The Navajo Nation is rich in many things, including its songmakers. One song that is reflecting the times comes to us from veteran hip-hop artist Defy. Its title rests in the first lyrics you're about to hear. American quarantine Everything they would have seen, I swear American quarantine Everything they would have seen, no American quarantine Everything they would have seen, I swear. American quarantine. Everything what is seen, no. Yeah. Closing corner stores and ignore the fiends. Broken borders, horrid scenes. Border doors, no warranties. Fifth wheel order quarantine. They try to trap us. Tax cuts and lower fees. Could you afford to leave a supported dream? Poor sports, hoarding disorderlies. Used to buy crowds from tour to tour. Now it's locked down from shore to shore. Pray the bombs don't drop now. But pray this all stops now. No more wars. The song came about through a collaboration between MC Defy and SoCal hip-hop artist and producer Ariano. For several albums, the two have mixed creative expressions. American Quarantine is featured on Defy's latest release, Ocean's Deserted Remixes, which came out a week ago. It's a follow-up to the March 6th Deserted Oceans album that rolled out when the coronavirus pandemic started to impact the U.S. and just before things started to shut down. Defy says this song gave him a chance to share how he's been feeling and just what he's been witnessing lately. I could focus on two of the bars in my song where I say, love is still here, never trusting your fears, believe in justice and readjust right now, even when it's just us in here. Those two lines kind of shift the messagery of the song because you're listening to some of the lyrical content in there. You know, it is really tough to rap about certain things, uh, especially right now in this current time, the pandemic, but adding those two lines in there and the other lines that are mentioned, it really kind of brings it focused back on towards more of the positive, like hope, like uh, the hope that we still have right now and not letting this pandemic break us down entirely. COVID-19 has impacted Defy on many levels. I think I've witnessed a lot of hardships online, mostly reading from the, the feed of certain friends, close friends of mine who have been tested positive for the COVID-19 and sharing their recovery online. And unfortunately, others like a close childhood friend of mine had went on and it's just really tough because it affected my community directly and uh, my where my family lives in Shiprock, New Mexico, all over the Navajo Nation reservation, the Dene Nation is really affected. So I've really tried to team up with some certain groups that are helping uh, response groups out on our res. And I just want to salute the first responders, the people out there who are working on the front lines to help 
people who aren't able to, for instance, even go into Gallup, New Mexico, because they're, they have a shutdown or and they're not able to buy groceries, for instance. And so hopefully, like, they're getting some supplies and support right now through these groups. And so I've done a few, like, fundraisers through virtual concerts to try to help out. And a lot of other friends have, too. Defy says this song is also going out to the world to help those who are facing struggles right now. It's his hope that the lessons learned in these times will help people become stronger and wiser for the future. He also looks forward to once again being able to gift his music live and direct. Rappers will plagiarize, they say the plague will rise. No going out, staying home, saving lives. Protecting your energy medically, spiritually, mentally. Sacred vibes up in the air, laid outside. Nobody's there, it's 4 a.m. and I'm stuck in a chair. With nothing to spare, as our country becoming aware. We're gonna prepare. Toilet paper's gone, but an out five, there's supplements there. Plans backfire, the government is subtly scared. The love is still here, never trust in your fear. Believe in justice, then readjust. But now, even when it's just us in here, strings attached to the cash that could trap us and cut you with shears. Even the puppeteers got the puppets in tears. 2020 took a turn. Mr. Riding shook the curb. Cooking first, I'm pushing words. As crooked, crooked money burns. Can you believe we're already at episode six of Illuminative On Air? Thank you so much for tuning in. We love making this podcast for you. If you like what you heard today, please consider giving us five stars and reviewing us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We've decided to bring you this podcast twice a month instead of once a week. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Our executive producer is Heather Ray. I am the series producer and Lincoln Cornshucker is our associate producer. Sound engineering is by Marino Spencer. Music by Samantha Crane and Defy. This podcast would not be possible without the support of the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, the Shakopee Mittawakanton Sioux Community, and the Macy Family Foundation. Take care, relatives. We'll see you next time.